Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a very special show. This is part one of a two-part conversation that I had the pleasure of having with Carrie Peck and Chris Peck. The actor and social justice activist Gregory Peck, who most of you have heard of, left us a lovely, lovely legacy through film, through doing so many important things from behind the scenes, and through providing us with descendants of his who have helped our world in so many ways and continue to do so. And I wanted to give them a chance today to talk about Gregory Peck, their father and grandfather, and also to talk about social change and making a difference and how you go about it, the pushback that you get, and how you keep pushing forward. So on the show today, we have Carrie Peck, Gregory Peck's son. He has spent 30 years in public service, first with the Metropolitan Transportation Authority and then with the Los Angeles Unified School District. He developed small business offices of those two agencies and then wrote grants and administered after-school programs to fight addiction and tobacco and drug use. He developed and is still in contract to run a computer education program with the LAUSD, which focuses on cybersecurity, something we all need. And then we have Carrie's son, Chris. Chris is an English and social justice educator who is taught in Hawaii, Venezuela, and Los Angeles. And this year, he traveled around the world and into classrooms recording the Traveling Teacher Podcast, his podcast. And he discusses the educational systems and ideologies in these different countries. If you want to be able to find his podcast, you can find it on any streaming device. And he's on Facebook and IG at the Traveling Teacher Podcast. Here we have Carrie Peck and Christopher Peck. Enjoy. All right, so I want to welcome Carrie and I want to welcome Chris to the Indoctrination Show. And I am so happy to have you both here and to have you be able to talk together. It's especially meaningful when it's multi-generational uh, because you get to see what gets moved along from generation to generation, what transcends, what matters, and how that gets filtered through the generations. And I, and I also like how different generations find a way to make a difference in different ways or in new ways. And so I want to be able to talk about that too. So how about Carrie, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, I've been working with uh, school development programs for about 20 years and small business programs before then. There are a couple of other legs to my career, which has been all over the place, but that has been the, the theme really for about the past 30 years. And when you start talking about 
indoctrination of the whole idea of the human potential movement and movements when you're trying to change people's activity, when you're trying to change people's nature, uh, you're fighting this huge entropy. So the battle has always been that with me. That can be exciting when you're working directly on a program, helping kids do computers, anti-smoking, anti-drug programs, which I've been involved with and written grants for. Mm -hmm. The more frustrating aspect is the entropy of the organization. Okay, okay. And you can be in an organization like a, a business or a school district or a metropolitan transportation authority who is asking to change, to bring in and involve small businesses mm-hmm. or involve students in anti-smoking programs and anti-drug programs or even fun stuff like a computer program. And the organization can fight the change as much as the students do. And in fact, that resistance is deadlier than with the students. Mm, okay. uh, and I, I, have, I have found that. That's the entropy that really hurts. Uh, mm-hmm. We started talking about Kill a Mockingbird. And that aimed for individual transformation. One person transforming one small area. And I think that was very much what the 60s was about. Mm-hmm. And that round of, of, of social activism. And now what is significantly different, people are talking about systemic change. Not enough to change people, but there's a systemic problem. We're not just looking at a few bad apples in the barrel. We're talking about barrels that make bad apples. Mm-hmm. And that's a substantial difference. And to me, that's where the real fight is. And that's where the whole movement is going. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to come back to the entropy. And uh, I want Chris to be able to introduce himself. And then we'll go back to To Kill a Mockingbird and then sort of move down the generations. So go for it, Chris. Well, thank you for having us on, Indoctrination. I've been in a middle school English and social justice teacher in Title I schools in Hawaii and in California, in Los Angeles particularly. And, you know, talking about uh, this level of indoctrination, we see a, these systems in place that have created a enormous level of disparity and inequitable access to education, particularly in, in my view. But you those levels of education you you can't separate that from access to housing and healthcare and jobs that really it's a whole systems in place that impact particularly students of color in low income mm. neighborhoods that is essentially allowed in our system and i think that's sort of we are indoctrinated to say to not say anything that white communities get to have the highest amount of money for their schools while communities of colors have schools that are run down have the most inexperienced teachers and it's these sort of systems that are in place that uh, aren't allowing for this sort of progression that we need in our society okay so well said i'm writing notes as you're talking so we can come back to some of the points that you already made so far because I want to be able to talk about the entropy and and then some and who it hurts and how to try to 
work your way around it or push through it if it's possible. And if it's not possible, what you do. And also just internally, how you can address that so that it doesn't drive you mad. Uh, and then uh, the disparity that you're talking about and also being indoctrinated to not say anything because this is a time where voices are being heard and some of the stress around it has been making way for the voices that should be heard now, but also how people who might not be dealing directly with systematic oppression can also talk about what they're noticing uh, without taking over the space and without talking over other voices, but lending their voice and how to be able to approach those conversations. Because I know there's been some tension around that, how we talk about this. And so, okay, so we'll be able to talk more. So let's head back up. I'm seeing generations. I'm going like this in my mind. <laughs> so we'll head back up to your father and grandfather, Gregory Peck. And tell me a little bit about him as a person just wanting to make inroads, wanting to educate, wanting to do what he could and what he can. What, what can you tell us about him? Uh, my dad came from a, a good family. His father owned a pharmacy in La Jolla and was a fixture in the community, taught basketball at the local club, uh, was a member of the La Jolla marching band when those were uh, rather turn of the century, those were very popular, uh, John Philip Sousa-like. The family during the Depression had a hard time and they lost the business. And he spent a couple of years in really Dickensian situations, mm. being shipped off to ants and, and various people. Uh, and it affected him a huge amount because his father, uh, the store that he owned, ended up being bought by Rexall drugstore which is a mm -hmm. predecessor of CVS yeah and and he was an employee for the rest of his life and that affected my father terribly that his his father who he so admired went through such hardship and the family went through such hardship mm -hmm. he always wanted to be someone who gave to the community as his father used to give to the community and he wanted to add to America he had a vision that broad even when he was young. And so he was always ready to, to give out his heart and his energy and create, uh, well, he was a pal of LBJ, so he wanted to help create the greater society. Uh, he sat down in the backyard of George Stevens's backyard in Georgetown and on a pair of legal pads, they outlined the foundation of the American Film Institute. Hmm. And my father then flew off to Rochester, New York, and got a, a huge grant, multi-billion dollar grant from Kodak to start it off. And his activities, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Humanities, uh, he helped the Academy, he was president of the Academy. So he, he wanted to give back in a very broad way, like being a father to all artists. Mm -hmm. um, he had a huge personal energy and ambition and a huge native wit, he was smart as hell. Um, I think his generosity, he was generous personally, but I think his emphasis was on larger social themes and social action. Yeah. And a lot of his action was there. So living with him was a bit like living with this 
huge locomotive. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was going places and it was doing a lot of interesting things. A little hard to hug at times. Yeah. That's because that's where his energy went. And he, he couldn't have accomplished all the things he did mm-hmm. uh, without that focus was before everything else. Right. Uh, and so I hear what you're saying about balance, that there are a lot of people who are the children and grandchildren and others' spouses who will say, I uh, I sacrificed without it being my choice, but I had to sacrifice part of our time together or part of our relationship um, for the greater cause or greater good. And I know that can create its own discussions, but at the same time, there, there's so much to do that sometimes it does feel like there's no way to be able to spend enough time with everyone and with everything that matters to you. And I know that it's not, it's not a perfect system. And I wish that there, I wish there wasn't so much to have to fix, uh, so that people focus on what they should be able to focus on. Did he get pushback after being in To Kill a Mockingbird? I well. He went on Nixon's enemies list. So, uh, yes, uh, he actually got more pushback for an earlier film he did, which was Gentleman's Agreement, which was anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And he was flatly warned not to do it by his agent and his attorney and many people in the industry. And they said, that's poison. You will you know, ruin your film persona. And uh, he wanted to do it. It was a big cause and he wanted to take it on. Mm. Uh, and he was excited about it, and of course, the film has been very well received. And, and uh, but it was a, it was more than just a gamble; it was a, it was a risk, and he jumped into it. By the '60s, the world had changed a lot, and the civil rights movement was in full swing. Yes, there was some controversy. There certainly were conservatives that weren't fans of the movement, but certainly the creative community, the artistic, the progressive community was looking for that story. Right. And and he fought for it and campaigned with it and uh and helped bring it bring it through. Hmm. It, it's an incredible thing when you see or when you hear about people taking those risks and saying, you know, yeah, I, it could be bad for my career, but that needs to matter less. And so they make a decision and even though decision, which I respect wholeheartedly. Well, he also did, uh, after that, Catonsville 9 against the Vietnam War. So he, he, that was a consistent theme through his career, as was, people don't realize it, but all of his war films were anti-war films. Uh, all of them contained debates about the value of war, the process of war, the dehumanization of war. Uh, in Porkchop Hill, they're fighting in Korea just expending blood and treasure over one more pile of dirt. Mm-hmm. Guns of Navarone is one long philosophical debate between him and David Niven mm-hmm. about war. And there's a one little passage where Dad and his character, Captain Mallory, says, you know, you have to wake up in the morning and just be as tough and as nasty as the other guy. And David Niven fires back. He says, what's the point then? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very key. People remember that for all the shenanigans and the running around and a great cast and a terrific adventure yard. 
What really makes it is the debates that they have during that time. What should they do with a prisoner? What should they do with a member of the party who's wounded and they can't carry with them anymore? What do they do about a spy? Mm-hmm. They were arguing about the human cost there and, and what we're indoctrinated to think and and what they have to do, what they should do. So um, that, that was a taking on challenges like that was consistent 12 o'clock high. Mm-hmm. That running the campaign is not only murderous for the men, but it it destroys their their mental ability also. So that that theme is throughout all his films. And was that dinner table conversation too? No, we didn't have philosophical talks talks around the table. We were mostly just talking about family and people and stuff like that. And catching up, mm-hmm. little little stories that happened on set. There are always a million stories. Uh, no, he didn't. Uh, we have a copy of his script for uh, Mockingbird, and that's fascinating to see because it is so heavily annotated. Every page, words, emphasizes things to emphasize, but also on the back and on the margins, comments about where the, this is taking the character, what he's thinking about, and that debate about civil rights and how far one should step alone and step out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's extraordinary. He, it's not that he didn't have those debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tended to internalize them a lot. And I remember reading it when I was young, and uh, I remember the literature teacher who I had was just focusing on the different imagery and the bird imagery, uh, and even in the courtroom having people up in what felt like sort of the nest, and uh, right, and so. That was really the whole conversation. And it was about the words that were used and the bird imagery. And I remember thinking um, there should have been a comma at the end of that and not a period. Like that's something interesting to talk about, but that's not the whole story. But I guess that was the thing that the, the teacher felt most comfortable focusing on. And it's a shame sometimes when people will watch something and not see what you want them to see, maybe not on their first go around. And maybe not at their age. Uh, and so that's why I encourage people to watch it again now. Uh, and watch all those movies again now. And really look at it with fresh eyes and mature eyes uh, from a different perspective and from a different world. Um, and so tell me a little bit about you, Carrie. Then you got propelled into a life where you were working hard to try to make inroads. and sounds like that uh, it was made difficult for you, which it always is. And so can you talk a little bit about more of what you were able to do and the entropy? The whole idea of entropy and indoctrination, well, an entropy is stasis about things mm-hmm. that as they are, most people would then prefer to sit and, and just stay in that. But in the end, there are too many people that are too curious mm. and too energized Mm-hmm. And and they want a little bit more, a little bit better. They can envision something farther ahead. So there are always people pushing forward, but all of them are considered uh, crackpots and cranks. Yeah. Um, Steve Jobs, an obvious genius, mm-hmm. but he would have meetings and he would set deadlines and specific goals for teams that they had never done before. I mean, they had things that hadn't been put into, you know, micro-sized devices. And they called it the Steve Jobs alternate reality field. 
and 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 they would they would they'd be sitting thinking shaking their heads going this is this is crazy we can't do it mm-hmm. and yet time and time again his vision proved through mm. um, the wright brothers were considered a bunch of little bicycle guys a little <laughs> crazy out there and then and then they flew and that's that's so common um henry ford was well he was a weirdo in many ways but when he was doing the first model t the number of basic inventions that went into that car, like mm-hmm. the alternating battery, mm-hmm. they invented, they just said, we can't have it this way. We've got to have it do something else. And they just came up with it. Um, but all those people had to fight. And I am far less prominent than Jobs and Ford and all those people. But even doing a drug program right. at school yeah. becomes a battle because people like they, they have problems, they're protections for students. Mm-hmm. And yet to get them to talk about their lives and change their lives, we had to talk, talk about their person. That meant we had to get into personal details. And that just absolutely knocked people out of the program. Possible supporters because they didn't want to get involved with kids. Mm-hmm. Had to talk about problems they had. Do you know the theory of ACEs? Oh, yeah. Adverse childhood experience. Yeah, yeah. We had to talk about aces because we had to get to what was bothering them. Mm-hmm. Why were they smoking? Mm-hmm. And we had a huge administrative pushback that some people never let go that said we were endangering the children because we might bring up negative thoughts or upset them and then upset the school. And, and yet you cannot wean someone from addiction without getting to their soul. And the indoctrination and and the resistance was that you no, know, you can't do that. You you can't. That's too expensive to do with students. And mm-hmm. and we had it was a fight. It was a fight to get it done. Um, and so, any any time you go any from the '60s to the present, there's always people fighting. Look at the struggle now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. over Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess yeah. the biggest change is now we've seen it. We watched the film of those four cops. You can't push it away anymore, but it, it needed that. But it's the same fight even now to get that done. Mm-hmm. How are we going to recalculate the police? Mm-hmm. We're going to have a militaristic Praetorian guard stomping around our streets, or are we going to have a community-minded protection force? Vast difference. We're obviously on the militaristic side of things right now. They're buying armored yeah. cars, helicopters. and Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I want to be able to bring um, Chris in the, into the discussion, and I and I think you bring up such an interesting point, Carrie, about that sometimes it's that we're asking the wrong questions. That when you're dealing with something like drug abuse, the focus that I think people are comfortable with, and this is what you're up against among a lot of other things, is the what and the how, but not the why. And so what are you doing? How do you stop it? You know, no one is going to want to stop something if that's the only thing that gives them a sense of peace in a home where there's violence or whatever the situation is. And so when you get to the why, then you get to the heart. And then you also show that you care, that you care about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then you get to a place of, uh, I think, not being judgmental, but rather understanding. 
and help them to understand too, that maybe that's not the way or that's not the only way to get help with fixing what's wrong and how they feel. And to have that pushback, I guess that's where it gets messy and people don't like messy. Uh, it's unfortunate because you gotta get into the muck to figure it out. Um, and so Chris, what do, you, what do you think, have you found just in terms of education that there have been changes with that, with people getting to the root of things or is there still resistance? There's definitely still resistance. I feel like there is a large population of educators that, especially from those, you know, leading these, um, leading these organizations that are so focused on academics solely. So what are the test scores? Yeah. And then based on these test scores, we're going to then give our resources to these various schools. Mm -hmm. And, you know, time and time again, it's shown that the highest levels of, you know, life success, success in college, success in a career is your ability to socially and emotionally uh, like regulate your behavior. And so focusing more on those sort of behaviors, looking at ACE, I think is a great example to really, we need to be trauma informed. Mm -hmm. I think that is, you know, for all educators, it's crucial to be aware of those things mm -hmm. and really dive into um, the social emotional learning for, for students and how they can, you know, really process those emotions, especially during, I think key periods of their life. I mean, I'm a middle school teacher, which is the second largest development of, you know, of your lifetime. Uh, you're going through, of course, you know, your physical changes, your, your brain is developing rapidly. You're going through a variety of social dynamic shifts. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're also really, you know, starting to craft your ideology and understanding of the world in a more succinct way. And, you know, so talking about the ability to really see these larger forces that are in place, uh, whether that may be like the, you know, the killing of George Floyd and how that is really connected to a larger connection of oppression of particularly black men, but, uh, you know, people of color in general and how these communities have a, a policing problem, right? It is, it is a violence that is directed towards them by means of, you know, a militarized force. Uh, you know, and it, it deals with this reactionary uh, stance. We are going to change the actions by adding more police force rather than, well, what's the root core? What's the root cause? How can we really make sure that we have a society that, you know, is, has equity? And, and in that case, then we need to make sure that we are providing spaces for uh, access to healthcare, access to equitable education, and access to jobs and housing. And, uh, you know, if, if we really want to correct the ails of society, those are the, the ways we can be proactive and really fix the, um, those situations. And, but we choose to purposely defund those. I think that's the thing that's really interesting right now is it's not radical to think about defunding the police when you actually realize that we've been defunding education for years. And, yeah. you know, we reinvest in our communities and we reinvest in our children you know, and then we can create the, the future that we need. Like right now we need to make sure that we are focusing on the why. Why do we have these systems of oppression? Why do we have these 
deficits and inequities in our society and let's go to the root and fix those. I, yes. And also looking at um, just social behavior, human behavior, why do people turn a blind eye? Why do they look away? Why don't they get involved? And there are a lot of reasons and some of them are really quite valid, but there is something about just kind of hmm, wanting it to not be something you have to worry about or do anything about. And so there's a lot that takes place that shouldn't for way too long. I think also when you're talking about making inroads and helping people with what they want, how do you form and what's the best way to form a sense of connection and community so that people don't feel like they're able to fall, that they'll, they will be buoyed that there is a community around them. How do you do that? The best way is to create systems that are in place to make sure that those safety nets are, you know, there physically and, you know, economically to be supportive. But I think when we're talking about interpersonally um, and like community organizing, it's about that sort of, uh, you know, particularly like within a classroom or within a school setting, you really create a, a sense of, of bond, a familiar relationship um, between students and teachers and different educators that is founded on a common goal of, of growth and of uh, you know, this desire to really take this year and develop this relationship that will be both beneficiary or your own social emotional learning and growth, but also your to say in my class, speak with confidence, to write eloquently and persuasively, to ask critical questions, uh, to engage with, you know, in thoughtful dialogue and discussion, uh, kind of developing these skills, but it requires these positive relationships that you have to develop through a variety of means. And, you know, there's, there's other ways I think, like, I think, Tying into another question that you kind of alluded to, okay. I think one other issue that we, uh, the reason why I think a lot of us struggle with kind of seeing each other is because our society is segregated, right? And as white people, we don't have to necessarily, we are indoctrinated into the norms of our society, which is, right, the white normality. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to regard ourselves as a race, which we are. and People, white people particularly, need to take the time to really educate themselves around what does that mean? How does my whiteness uh, benefit me in the society? How have I been indoctrinated into this sense of whiteness? And I think those sort of uh, you know personal actions can really help you know a a greater self-reflection that allows for greater connection. Because once you know yourself better, you can connect others better. I love it. So it gives me a sense that with your teaching style, it's this non-hierarchical space where you're having people turn towards each other. And Mm -hmm. so that's going to be, you know, there are not a lot of teachers probably who are willing to do that. Uh, And so I think it takes a certain... Uh, selflessness or a a need to see that you're a conduit and not the head of that space. I I want to tell a story on Chris. Yeah. Um, When he first went to Hawaii and was teaching there, uh, his, I think it was his first 
first day of school. There was a little boy who was there, and, and you know, they stayed a while after school. They had kind of a study hall, and he was playing with his friends and having fun and not really buckling down on the books, certainly. And his, I guess his mother came to pick him up, and the boy started crying, violently crying, because his father didn't have a lot of time to spend with him. But, he, but when he came home, he expected the homework to be done. And the boy would be punished. And we're not talking about a talking to. He was going to be punished. Wow. So his first day of school, he has a boy crying to him who didn't apply himself to study hall and is afraid of going home and, and being punished. And he had to negotiate that um, and did. Wow. Um, wow. Yet other teachers wouldn't, would say, you missed your chance at study hall. Very proud that he involved himself. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that moment? Yeah. I mean, that moment and many others, I think what's really important, I mean, talking about, you know, the, the classroom structure doesn't just, was, doesn't just reside within four walls. You need to connect with the larger fam- you know, families and communities. And that means really, you know, getting to know the community and living in the community and communicating with parents on a weekly basis. Uh, and those sort of relationships really just blossom. And you see this reciprocal effect of uh, you go to that student's game. You know, that, I mean, that particular student, I know he, he dealt with a lot of particular traumas. And, mm. you know, by developing a plan for like that particular student and agreeing to go to his sort of uh, after school programs, which he, he was a basketball player. And so I went to his basketball games and how meaningful that is. Mm-hmm. And when you really encourage students to have a voice and to have a say in what they are learning, what are the goals, what are the expectations within the classroom, they really have a greater sense that this is my space. I think too often teachers believe that they are this head of the classroom that my way goes and they set this kind of hierarchical sense. And mm-hmm. what we really need to be doing is empowering students, especially I think students of college, because our communities are not empowering them. And we need to make sure that they have that sense of empowerment and that sense of understanding their own self identity and how to express that identity in the larger context of the world that they are in. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I want to say when yes, working please. with the, the drug programs, the anti-smoke okay. programs, yes. that you have to make the same transition. You have to talk about them mm-hmm. or else you're teaching a syllabus. Mm-hmm. Like many teachers now, just obviously teach to the test. Yes. And Chris actually had to fight a couple of times in school to teach a whole book because what they had done was chop up the literature into pieces of books of chapters. And that's what you learned. They didn't have one whole book in the curriculum all year. Not one? Zero. Because they were teaching to a test and the test. The relevant question was on chapter 12. So what you had to do is have them read chapter 12. Uh, and Chris had to fight to do a whole book. Yeah, or there's particular curriculums that are given to you that are already pre-described right. that are a working style, right? And it's right. it's just, you know, we really need to be creating, you know, we don't want to be creating robots, right? It's the same problem that, that has been continuing on for decades. Mm-hmm. You need to make sure that we're giving them these 21st century skills that don't just mean the ability to 
effectively use technology, it means that they're able to have these interpersonal skills, have a dialogue over things that they disagree on, um, have, you know, be able to write persuasively on points that they're passionate about. It's these kind of collective skills that, uh, you know, I think are often missed and with enjoyment, I think, too, like with their own interest in mind, mm -hmm. which is, I think, a lot of classrooms. And I think also in keeping with what you're saying about uh, things being chopped up and uh, just learning what's going to be on the test, there is this systemic issue, of course, with schools getting funding, getting more recognition if their students do better on those tests. So there is this positive reinforcement to have robots. And, and so then what do you do? Because it's not like you can just go to the principal and say, listen, you know, this isn't a great way to do things because the principal has an incentive to do it that way. And so how do you help the whole space, the whole school or school system move out of that um, downward spiral? I mean, it really is circular. Well, I think some colleges are beginning to dump the tests because they understand there's something more important to a student's success. Right. And I, if you talk about measurement systems, we were, since that's the topic these days about police violence, how do we grade policemen in effect? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The number of tickets they give out and the mm -hmm. number of arrests they make. Mm -hmm. so their incentive is to write tickets and make arrests. Yeah, right. Not to solve problems, not to protect a neighborhood. They're there to bag people. Yeah, it, it, that's a fundamental difference. Right, and and that's a fundamental problem. Yeah, the, the, the indoctrination is that they're to put you in the sack and drag you off to jail. Not to mention that the root of you know policing in the United States is riddled with, with racism. And you know, those roots don't go away, right? Mm -hmm. they, have, mm -hmm. they were created to make sure that they uphold racist laws. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just countless time and time again and, and then of course i think an incredible book that i'd really recommend is talking about the new jim crow which is now this kind of new uh mass incarceration that has now more black americans in jail than we had during slavery which is frightening statistic. Is really, yeah uh, i think talking too about like how to persuade schools about how to uh you know, address the issue is really challenging because as you said, principals are like, we need to meet these marks. Right. Uh, but, you know, if we really look about how do we meet those marks, it's about, you know, uh, giving the full child their full ability to learn uh, on music and art and these other extracurriculars beyond the, the math and the English and the history. Mm -hmm. When you actually give them the variety of choices, they'll do better on these tests. Mm -hmm. I think there's just a, there's a misalignment that we just need to put more time and emphasis mm -hmm. on these these particular subjects mm -hmm. and actually correlate to doing better on scores. And also like getting recess. It is frightening the amount of schools that don't have an uh, adequate amount of time for recess. Right, right. Yes, and uh, yes, that is really frightening uh, because there's so much learning that takes place, as you know, on a schoolyard uh, that isn't just about learning the sport, you know. Uh, and so I think, you know, when we talk about testing, I have used trigonometry zero times in my life since I learned it. 
And instead, I could have learned conflict resolution. I could have learned how to balance a budget as I move forward in my life. And so I can make good decisions for myself or for my family, whatever life skills. And so I think that there's something also about when you're, when you're talking about being, feeling like you're up against the system, it's, uh, and that you still want to be able to do something, even if you feel like your attempts are not going to be fruitful still, I think what you do by doing that is you behave in a way that's aligned with your conscience. And also you model for the people around you, how it's important to do what matters to you, whether or not it works or, or people were ready for the message then, they might be ready later. I remember when you were talking about Rexall drugs, Carrie, and uh, now I'm remembering the sign. I remember the, I remember how it's written, um, that there was a favorite Barnes and Noble, not far from where I live, and they were closing, and now there's a CVS there. And as they were closing, we're all out there picketing, and I'm picketing, my kids are picketing, we spent the day making signs and walking around the building. A lot of people joined us. And there were people I knew who came by and said, why are you wasting your energy? They've already signed the lease. You know, CVS is going in. Why are you doing this? As though somehow our little cardboard sign was going to keep this giant from coming in. That was not the point at all. It was to be able to say what really matters to you, be an example to your kids, or just get some of your anger out, you know, being able to shout about it, which I think is important too. And also as people are driving by to help them see that people care. Um, and so there's so many other messages that you can send, even if it doesn't have the success that you want. Um, yes. Yes. And the messaging has to start from the top. That's where the innovation message comes. If there isn't that cover, for the people that want to do things new ways, mm -hmm. then, then there's no hope. Um, mm -hmm. I've been lucky. I've had some work with some terrific programs with senior executives who gave me cover to do new things. And the drug program and the anti-smoking program are definitely one. And the computer program, as uncontroversial as that sounds, was another. And, and I remember when Chris was at that school with a story that he talked to you about, about the young man, yeah. he had a terrific principle that encouraged the gave cover and you can get you know, everyone has been in programs where you're under a martinet who just wants to go by the rules and anything different is a violation of the rules mm -hmm. and uh it's very hard to get out of the indoctrination that's the indoctrination that really hurts mm -hmm. it really hurts lack of vision from the top and 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 the hidebound indoctrination of people at the top. Yeah. That kills these trees die from the top. I think it's also important that it, it comes through as well from the actions of those group grassroots organizations that are are moving along the tide as well. I think it, it comes from these like these mixing of tides from both these top leaders and also these organizations that are in place. And yeah. when they meet certain events like right the killing of George Floyd, I think it, it creates these these amazing movements. And when we have voices that are being spread, mm -hmm. right, and this continual presence and persistence, right, for a particular message, yeah. we're seeing these larger systems being changed, like 
the dismantling of the Minneapolis Police Department. We're seeing these larger things that are starting to shift, but you know, it's only been you know two weeks, and we need to make sure that like you know, in order for like larger things that we've been indoctrinated to really take place, it takes time to educate, it takes time to learn, it takes time to unlearn, it takes time to really you know push this these agendas that are necessary for a more equitable society. Yes, and and I think the challenge, one of the biggest challenges, I think, is to keep the motivation going after the, you know the tear gas has dissipated, uh, yeah. right? And how do you have people still care, even though they aren't engaging in the fight? There's still a fight, even though it doesn't have to be played out in the same way. But there are people up against other people and systems. And so how do you keep the momentum going? I mean, I think that that's a huge challenge because we, we become complacent much too easily. And so, I, and I think you also have to do this sort of balancing act because sometimes people get tired of hearing it. They get sort of compassion fatigue and, you know, like, he's a broken record. And so how do you find that balance of having people still be invested in making a change? You need people all in all the time. I'm, look at the environmental movement. Earth Day was when I was happened when I was in college, and and, and the movement received a critical mass of support. Mm -hmm. And there's always been resistance. Look at the current administration dismantling every clean air, clean water, clean anything set of rules that they can. Right. There's still a huge environmental movement that's pushing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess, do we have enough weight? Is there enough support for the dismantling of the police department? And I don't mean, I'm not one of those that wants to just tear it down, but obviously it needs to be remade. Not a, not yeah. a group of military occupiers, but a group of citizen protectors and, and community builders. And that's a huge change. Is there, are people willing to give up their fear? to do that and mm. you also have a titanic police industry for most small cities and big cities policing is the largest item on the budget and not just by a little in most cities it's half of the budget mm. that's really where we want to spend our money mm -hmm. they'd be doing public outreach programs should they do be, work with broken families that social workers should be doing mm-hmm don't have to stand a car with fancy lights and a guy with guns to go in and resolve family dispute. In fact, that may be the worst possible way to do it. But yeah, to agree. give up that huge lobbying group that is the police amalgam of the United States and to give up people's fear, that's a tough thing. Um, mm -hmm. Even though there's no relation, look, at there's been a steady decline in crime in the United States mm -hmm. that is now... A decade or over long and mm -hmm. and it's gone through recessions and it's gone through boom time yeah and and sociologists are just scratching their head they're, they're you know you can find some answers in this corner but not there obviously more and more police is not the answer One more thing before you go. I'm so glad you got to hear part one of my conversation with Carrie and with Chris. And a special thank you to my friend and colleague, Cecilia Peck, 
for making the introductions. Carrie talked about something so interesting. I mean, we talked about a lot of things that were interesting. But he talked about how in order for there to be a change in the system, for there to be police reform or different ways to intervene on people's behalf in any way that haven't been done before, that haven't been tried before, in order for there to be that kind of change, in order for there to be a different way of making an inroad, in order for there to be the confidence to give up the old way, you have to be willing to give up your fear. The system is designed in a certain way, whether it be the police system, whether it be drug and alcohol intervention, whether it be the education system, any kind of system, the mental health system, that is a bit, as I said in our interview, tried and true, but sometimes really that's just an expression and it could have been tried, but sometimes it's just not true. Sometimes it's just not the best way. But people hang on to the way it is, the status quo, because they're too worried about change, sort of better the devil you know than the devil you don't. So you want to hang on to the system that you think is keeping you safe, that you think you need, that you think has, well, at least kept you safe so far. But then when you find out it hasn't or it isn't, then what do you do? One of the first things you need to do is you need to be able to address the fear you have of making that change. And so right now in the world that we live in, we're dealing with a lot of people who are afraid of making those changes. Well, what if we abolish the system in order to have a different system? What's going to happen in the meantime? Maybe some awful things or maybe some wonderful things or maybe nothing at all. But let's find out, shall we? I mean, there is the sense that if you make a change, somehow there are no safeguards. But if you make a change slowly and wisely, interacting with people who know something about something and are willing to kind of test it out, but still not really feel like you're going to be a guinea pig to this whole new system, but really that you're going to be a part of something that could really progress into something exciting. You want people to get excited about the new possibilities, about the new ways to do things, about the new ways to address problems. But again, people do like to hang on to what they know, whether it works or not. And then you don't have uncertainty. You don't have as much anxiety. You can kind of put things out of your mind, feeling like something is in place that's already been in place for many, many years, and it will just keep existing that way. Let's not rock the boat. And then you can sleep more fitfully at night. But tying in the idea of being willing to give up your fear and also the part of my discussion with Carrie and with Chris about the power certain films have had to help foster conversations and insights about social issues, the anti-anti-Semitism film, the anti-war film, the anti-bigotry film, the anti-racism film, the films that Gregory Peck chose to be in. Those become our talking points at times. Those become our frames of reference. And those become the expressions that sometimes are used 
to describe when something new is happening or something interesting is happening or different. People will quote lines from a movie. People will quote lines from a script. People will just throw out the name of a movie that they know had to do with that particular issue. And you can see how it becomes so deeply embedded in people's psyches in such an important way. A number of years ago, I was called to jury duty. And I was actually, to be very honest, I was nursing my middle child at the time. And I really did want to get home at the end of each day. It hurt <laughs> that I couldn't do what I needed to do to feed my child. It hurt physically and emotionally. But there was a trial going on that I was a part of. And it had gone through the entire week, and it was now Friday afternoon. And the situation was that there was a man, a black man who was homeless, who was brought up on charges of robbing a store. And he was there sitting in the courtroom, and they showed the surveillance tapes. And it was so grainy and so far away that you couldn't really tell it was him. But by Friday afternoon, the jury was talking about how they were just sure he was guilty. And why? Because there weren't other black people who shopped at that store. I'm not quite sure how they knew that, but that's what they were assuming. And because the man sitting in the courtroom was a homeless black man, and so was this man who was on the surveillance tape. And one of the people on the jury said, if he's homeless, what's so bad about going to jail? At least he's going to get three meals a day. And another one said, it's Friday afternoon in Los Angeles. I have to get home. I don't want to deal with traffic. Let's just make the decision. And so there I am again in physical discomfort. And I really want to get home too. But I thought that's not enough of a reason to send somebody to jail. And so I was this kind of lone voice. I was the person who kept the decision from being able to be made that Friday afternoon. And I was hated. But I thought, what if this were my child, my spouse, my anything, my friend, just a human being? Would I want to know that I participated in sending this person to jail just because the image on the surveillance camera looked close enough and just because I didn't want to have to deal with so much Friday afternoon traffic and it was better just to have this case be over? I love our system for so many reasons, and I love that there is able to be a jury, but I also know that it is faulty to a fault. And so I remember being shunned, and I remember people truly hating me and berating me. And I remember walking out of the courtroom with people staring and glaring and doing all the things that they do. And I remember not caring. <laughs> and I just felt very determined that those weren't good enough reasons to decide that somebody's guilty. And so I remember telling somebody the story who was my age, who said, oh, that's ridiculous, that's awful, I hate our legal system, it's incredible 
what can prompt people to be seen as guilty versus innocent, et cetera. And there've been a lot of studies about that, the inequity in the system for a lot of reasons. And then I remember talking to someone who was a generation older who said, oh, you had a 12 angry men moment. And I said, I had a what? And so she said, you haven't seen the movie? And I said, I haven't. So she said, oh, you need to see the movie. I said, okay, I kind of put it out of my head. And then later on, a friend of my mom's was called for jury duty. And I told him the story and he said, oh, yep, 12 angry men. So I thought, I need to see this movie. But it, I did, and it was amazing, and you should see it too. But it is incredible how when people say things like To Kill a Mockingbird, and they say phrases like gentleman's agreement, you get a vision, but you get a feeling. You know very deeply what these people are talking about. And you can see how much it lasts through the generations. And so I am very happy to be able to find out also about families that have been able to have their sense of what's right and what's wrong transcend and be passed down from generation to generation. It's very exciting to me. Sort of keeps the ideal and the dream and the work towards having a better world alive. And so next week, you'll be able to hear the remainder of my conversation with Carrie and with Chris, and you'll hear a little more from Chris about his work, his teaching, and his own podcast. And I look forward to talking to them again next week, and I will talk to you all next week as well. If our democracy is to work the way it should in this increasingly diverse nation, then each one of us need to try to heed the advice of a great character in American fiction, Atticus Finch, who said, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.